need a Bible this morning. And so would you go ahead, please, and open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you want to save some battery on your phone, then open up one of those pew Bibles in front of you. And I'll give you a shortcut just in case you're new to the Bible. You'll find Joshua chapter 3 on page 185 in our pew Bibles. Uh, we've got a long passage. I, again, want to encourage you to have your Bible open uh, so that when we read, you can track along with me and uh, you can keep that in front of you and take a few notes this morning as well as we study Joshua chapters 3 and 4. We are wrong about miracles. I don't know if you know this, but we are very wrong about miracles. We're wrong in this way. We often think that miracles are the goal, that the miracle itself is the thing. And so that sort of thinking comes across in this way, we will hope for a miracle. We will pray for a miracle. We say things like this, it's a miracle, or do you believe in miracles? We always think of the miracle as the goal in and of itself, and that's where we're wrong. The miracle is not the goal. The miracle is a messenger. Every miracle has something to teach us about God. It is a package that delivers this truth that is greater than itself. And so, for example, when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the message he's teaching us is that he is the God of heaven and earth. When Jesus gave sight to the blind man in Jericho who called him the son of David, he was saying, this man sees right where everyone else sees wrong. This is indeed who I am. Or when Jesus fed the multitudes with just a little bit of food, multiplied it and gave it to all of them, He's telling them and us that he is the bread of life. Everlasting life is in him. So every miracle is a messenger. And that's especially true today when we watch God part the waters of the Jordan River. And what message is God delivering through this miracle? Well, we're told in the passage itself. So I want you to look at it with me. But even before we read, I want you to see what God wants us to learn from this miracle. It's in chapter 3, verse 10. And here, Joshua is speaking to the Israelites before they cross the Jordan River. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, he said, You will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hethites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites, when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. So when the Ark of the Covenant goes into the Jordan, when those waters part and you cross, here's what you're going to know, Israel, that God is with you and that He is powerful to give you this land to fulfill this promise. The message of the miracle of the parting of the Jordan River is all about the power of God. God is not content to merely be powerful or to merely display his powerful acts. He wants his people to respond in certain ways to his power. If we see God right and if we understand his power properly, then as his followers, we're going to respond in a very specific way. 
Now, here's what's true this morning. If I were to give you a theological exam and ask, do you believe that God is all-powerful, that he's omnipotent, you would check yes on that. But oftentimes, there is a separation between our theology and our lived experience. And so we'll say, yes, I believe that God is all-powerful, but then we will turn right around and wilt in the face of whatever challenge we're going through. But if God is with us, if God is delivering on his promises to us, if God is powerful, then we shouldn't doubt or fear anything. When God parts the waters of the Jordan River, he's displaying his power and he wants us to respond in specific ways. And so this morning in Joshua 3 and 4, the passage calls for four responses to God's power. And you want to be four for four on these responses. Follow along with me as I read. We're going to read the whole thing. I know it's a long passage, but it's important that we read it all in one sitting so that you can get the flow of the story and see the major emphases throughout. So settle in. Joshua chapter 3 starts this way. Joshua started early the next morning and left the Acacia Grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God carried by the Levitical priests, you are to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves. Because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Then he said to the priests, carry the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of them. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. So they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, Come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He said, You will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hethites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites, when the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. Now choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, When the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its waters will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the ark of the covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. But as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarethan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. After the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, 
Choose 12 men from the people, one man for each tribe, and command them, take 12 stones from this place in the middle of the Jordan where the priests are standing. Carry them with you and set them down at the place where you spend the night. So Joshua summoned the 12 men he had selected from the Israelites, one man for each tribe, and said to them, go across to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you lift a stone onto his shoulder, one for each of the Israelite tribes, so that this will be a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean to you, you should tell them. The water of the Jordan was cut off in front of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. When it crossed the Jordan, the Jordan's water was cut off. Therefore, these stones will always be a memorial for the Israelites. The Israelites did just as Joshua had commanded them. The twelve men took stones from the middle of the Jordan, one for each of the Israelite tribes, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the camp and set them down there. Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. The stones are still there today. The priests carrying the Ark continued standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people in keeping with all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people hurried across and after everyone had finished crossing, the priests with the Ark of the Lord crossed in the sight of the people. The Reubenites... Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh went in battle formation in front of the Israelites as Moses had instructed them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed to the plains of Jericho in the Lord's presence. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him throughout his life as they had revered Moses. The Lord told Joshua, command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up from the Jordan. When the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came up from the middle of the Jordan, their feet stepped out on solid ground. The water of the Jordan resumed its course, flowing over all the banks as before. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern limits of Jericho. Then Joshua set up in Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken from the Jordan. And he said to the Israelites, In the future... When your children ask their fathers, what is the meaning of these stones? You should tell your children, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty, and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. If this miracle is a message, the message is about the mighty hand of God. It is about the power of God. And God wants us to respond to his power in four ways. Let me show you in this story. The first way we respond to God's power is with awe. When we see omnipotence on display, our response, the response of God's people, has always been awe at God's displays of his power. So chapter 3 opens with movement and instructions. Uh, The Israelites move from their camp to the edge of the Jordan River, and then come the instructions from uh, Joshua. Joshua informs them for the first time how it is they're going to cross the river. So in verse 2 of chapter 3, 
He says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests, you are to break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the Ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. The Ark of the Covenant is on prominent display throughout this story. It's all over chapters 3 and 4. And it's important that you understand what this is. And so let me show you one artist's depiction of the Ark of the Covenant. You're probably familiar with this. You've seen it before. Uh, but the Ark of the Covenant is described in Exodus chapter 25. I chose this picture to show, knowing it would be hard to see on our projectors. But I, I wanted you to see a depiction of the priests in the way they carried the Ark. And especially from this specific story, the waters piled up behind the Ark as it stood in the middle of the riverbed while the people crossed. Uh, in its simplest description, the Ark of the Covenant is a sacred box. It is a holy piece of furniture. It's rectangular in shape, made out of wood. It's lined inside and out with gold. It has a very special lid on top of it, which was called the mercy seat. That lid has angels that are facing each other, their wings extended over the mercy seat. And that mercy seat is where the blood of a sacrifice was sprinkled every year to atone for the sins of God's people. Inside the box were several sacred objects, and chief among them were the stone tablets that held the Ten Commandments. And that's why this is called the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark, that means the box, and the Covenant are the stone tablets of the Covenant. It's the box of the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant. That's what it is. It has these rings on each corner that these gold-plated poles were run through, and then the priests carried it on those poles. You didn't just pick it up and heave it yourself like an igloo cooler. The priests had to carry it on these poles because there's a separation between the people and God. There's a holiness to this Ark of the Covenant that sets it apart from everyone else. That Ark of the Covenant wasn't just kept in any common place but it was kept in the most holy places, in the tabernacle, that holy tent that traveled with God's people, and in the temple in Jerusalem, it was kept in this sacred room called the Holy of Holies. And where you see the Ark of the Covenant in this story, the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the presence of God. 17 different times in chapters 3 and 4, the Ark of the Covenant is referenced. It's never out of our sight. And every time you see it mentioned, you are to think about the presence of God with His people, the physical manifestation of God's presence with them. And so the Ark shows up throughout the story. In verse 3, it's carried by the priests in view of the people. Also in chapter 3, verse 3, when Israel sees the Ark, they are to follow it. In chapter 3, verse 8, the ark is going to lead the people when it enters the water. And when it goes in the water, it will cause the waters to stop. Chapter 4, verse 5, when the people walk through the river, they will walk in eyesight of the ark. They will see the ark with the wall of water behind it as they cross on dry ground. And then in chapter 4, verse 18, when the priests brought the ark out of the riverbed, the water returned. So look, don't miss this. When we talk about the ark doing all these things, we're talking about God. God took them to the riverside. 
God stepped in the water first. God piled up the waters. They looked at God as they crossed the river. And then when God stepped out of the riverbed, the waters came back. God did that, not Joshua. Joshua didn't raise a staff at the riverside. Joshua didn't command the waters to part. Joshua didn't pray that God would do something here. Joshua didn't lead the way into the water. Joshua didn't go first. The people didn't look at Joshua as they crossed the river. God did all of that. That's not because Joshua was weak and he should have done those things. That would have been improper. God is at the lead. God is in their eyesight because he wants his people to see his power. And in all the places in Scripture where God's people see these displays of his power, their response is awe. At the very end of this story, chapter 4, end of chapter 4, God says, I'm doing this so that you'll see my mighty hand and be fearful of me. Not fearful in this terrified sense, but in this awestruck sense. And so throughout the Bible, God's people respond with awe. In Psalm 65, God's people praise him for his awe-inspiring works, and they proclaim that those who live far away are awed by your signs. You make east and west shout for joy. And then in Psalm 66, the church is commanded to praise God for his inspiring works and invites all people to come and see the wonders of God because his acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, God works so that his people will be in awe of him. And then in Mark chapter 9, verse 8, Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God. Are you in awe of the power of God? His power displayed through these stories that we hold to be the speaking voice of God. These miracles that are retold to this day as if we were present with them and experienced these things ourselves. Are you in awe of God who has not only worked these miracles, but has done mighty things in your own life? And if you're not, you might have a vision problem. You might be looking at your problems more so than looking at your God. Remember the command to Israel. God's going to go before you. Look, you have to see the ark because you haven't gone this way before. And that's true of you when you walk out of this door this morning. Maybe you've walked out of here and down the stairs and to the parking lot or to a class or whatever. That's familiar. But you have no clue what awaits you the rest of this day or tomorrow or the day after. You haven't gone this way before. You've got to follow God. You've got to keep your eyes on the Lord. And when you do, you'll be in awe of Him. You're not going to be searching for things to be fearful of. You're not going to let these anxieties and doubts consume you. Your faith will not fracture, but in the awe of God, you will move forward with Him. If you're going to follow the path He set for you, if you're going to take up your cross and follow Christ, you've got to set your eyes on Him and walk with Him in awe at all of His mighty acts. You've got to be in awe of God, church. But there's a second way we're to respond to God's power in this story. The second way we respond to God's power is with holiness. In verse 5 of chapter 3, Joshua commands the people to consecrate themselves in advance of the miracle. Chapter 3, verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. 
So what does it mean to consecrate yourself? Let me give you a, a really simple definition. Consecration means this. It's the separation of oneself from things that are unclean, especially anything that would contaminate one's relationship with the perfect God. So when you consecrate yourself, you are preparing yourself for an encounter with God. We might also use the word sanctification or purification, but you are readying yourself for this encounter with God. How was it that Israel was to consecrate themselves? Well, they've done this in the past. It happened once before prior to Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, the people consecrated themselves by washing their clothes, by abstaining from sexual relations, and also from keeping a distance uh, from the holy mountain from Mount Sinai. Now in Joshua chapter 3, we aren't told specifically how they consecrated themselves. It's safe to assume that they repeated some of these same practices. But whatever they did, we can be sure that they took part in activities and rituals by which they were purified before the Lord. Now, the people consecrated themselves, and then the miracle happened. And if you aren't careful, you'll draw this conclusion from the story. You'll conclude that your holiness, your purity, is the prerequisite to God's miracle works. And you'll think that if, if you're holy enough then God will be leveraged in your favor. He will do the miraculous thing you want done if you reach a certain level of purity. And if that miracle has not yet landed, then you will conclude, well, I'm not holy enough. I'm not deserving enough. I haven't merited this miracle. And that would be a mistake in interpretation of this story. Because although the purification happened before the parting of the waters, if you look at Joshua's language... The promise of the miracle came well in advance of the purification. Look at what Joshua said to the people in verse 5. He tells them to consecrate themselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. He doesn't say purify yourselves so that he'll do the miracle. Or maybe God will do the miracle. You have this promise from the Lord. Therefore, Sanctify yourselves, purify yourselves, consecrate yourselves before Him. So even though the consecration happened before the miracle, it is still a response to God's gracious promise to do the miracle. And this is a common response throughout the Bible to the mighty acts of God. When people experience the power of God, they're made aware of their own sin and their need to be less like the world and more like God. A great example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. And do you know how Isaiah responded? Do you remember how Isaiah responded when he has an audience with the omnipotent, holy, holy, holy God of creation? He said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. When he stood in the presence of omnipotent holiness, all of his guilt and shame and sin is exposed. He knows fully who he is in front of his God, and he knows fully what he deserves in terms of judgment. But God in his mercy took care of Isaiah's sins in that moment. 
He cleansed him of his sin and guilt for his audience with the Lord. Holiness was Isaiah's response. Holiness is Israel's response. Holiness is our response to the power of God. God's displays of His power in our lives call us to live more like Him and less like the world. And look, that's not because every day is filled with miracles, but because God is omnipotent even in the ordinary. And so it's in the simple glories of life, the day-to-day mundane things where we meet the divine and we say, God, I want to walk with you and be holy as you are holy. What's the alternative to walking in holiness? Well, the alternative would be a sense of entitlement and arrogance that belittles God. So that we would see His mighty acts of old and we might see His mighty acts around us and assume that He is there to serve us. We would come before Him with a posture of arrogance. God, here's what I need you to do and here's why you should do it. But instead, in holiness, we submit to Him. In holiness, we're humble before Him. In holiness, we are like Him, and He calls us to live in His way as He completes His mighty purposes all around us. So God's mighty acts compel us to be like Him, to be holy. We respond to God's power with awe. We respond to His power with holiness. Third, we respond to God's power with confidence. As the story unfolds, there's some interesting descriptions that are given of the Jordan River. And so in chapter 3, verse 15, we're given this little detail that the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. Why is that there? It's not really imperative to the story. We don't have to have that detail. But yet the writer of the story wants to make sure that we understand something of the geography of the moment and the place. And in order to fully appreciate the magnitude of God's intervention. for Because it might not be enough to say God parted the waters. You need to really understand what the waters were like that he parted. Well, the writer gives us these details. So uh, let me show you a map of the place where the crossing happened. Can I get a woohoo for the map? Oh, you people. All right, we're going to have to work on our woohoos because maps are glorious tools for reading our Bibles better. And on this hard-to-see map, I know, uh, let me explain what you're looking at. North, south, east, west. In the north is the Sea of Galilee. You see that little bluish-whitish blob there at the northern end of the map. Sea of Galilee is there. Running south out of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. And it follows this deep decline in geography all the way down to the Dead Sea. That's what's at the very bottom of the map. So the Jordan River goes from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Where you see that arrow at the bottom is the place where Israel crossed the Jordan River. They are camped on the east side of the Jordan River. They got to get to the west side. The west side is promised land. The west side is Canaan. Immediately west of there is Jericho, and Gilgal is the place where they're going to set up camp after they cross. Now, this place where they cross the Jordan River, the Jordan River Valley is roughly 11 miles wide at that point. And when it's at flood stage, uh, the, the, the river was roughly a mile in breadth. 
When it wasn't at flood stage, it would be about 90 to 100 feet across. It might be anywhere from 3 to 10 feet deep. But when the floods came, then here it is. It's a mile wide. It's a raging torrent. And when you think about the decline in elevation, what you have here is not some ambling brook through a scenic countryside. What you have is this raging torrent of water. But that's not the only challenge that people face. Because lining the banks of the Jordan River is all this brush and overgrowth. Many writers use the word jungle to describe what it was. So they didn't cross some, you know, dinky little creek uh, with an in-ramp and an out-ramp that was nice and neat and tidy. They're standing in front of this raging river that no human being could even swim across, let alone walk across. And why does God do this? Of all the times you can do the miracle of the parting of the waters, why does he do it at flood stage? Shouldn't he choose a time when parting the water is easier for him, a little simpler? Well, isn't this God's way that he always brings us to these places where we recognize we are utterly powerless at the task ahead of us? He wants to leave no doubt in our minds that he is the mighty one. And he will do the good thing to deliver on his promise to us. Do you think God strained when he parted the waters? Do you think he had to squint his eyes and grit his teeth like, oh, this is a big flood and we got a whole... Do you think God sweat as he parted the waters? The God who spoke nothing, or spoke everything into existence out of nothing, who formed the earth, who hung the stars in their place in the sky, did God pull a muscle parting the waters, not a chance. But he wants his people to understand that in our powerlessness, he is utterly powerful. And the result for us, the response should be confidence. Don't you think Israel needed that confidence when they're told to walk silently around the walls of Jericho seven days in a row? And when they need that confidence in God, when they meet warring peoples who are better equipped for warfare than them as they begin to take possession of the promised land. And don't we need that same confidence in God when we face trial after trial after trial? Look, the mistake that so many believers make is we assume that our confidence in God is going to come from our knowledge of His plans. If I only knew what God was going to do in in my situation then I'd be confident. God, give me this knowledge. Let me know. But that's not how God works with His people. Our confidence doesn't come from our knowledge of what God is doing. Our confidence comes from our knowledge of who He is and what He is able to do. He is powerful. He is faithful. He is compassionate. He is omnipotent. That's where our confidence comes from. And he has displayed those things in many ways in the past. That's where our confidence comes from. There's a a great gospel song by a singer named Brenda Waters. The song is called Victory. And it says this. It says, I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know when he's going to fix it. I only know God's going to make a way for me. That's confidence in the power of God. Not in the plans, not in super knowledge, but in the God who is faithful and who keeps his promise to our people. If God is all-powerful, then, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear. Your confidence in God means you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. 
It means that even in the presence of your enemies, you can relax and eat a lavish feast because the Lord is with you. It means that even when death comes to you, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God's people are a confident people in the Lord. We don't doubt and we're not afraid. Now there are times when the tears come and there are times when the anxieties rise. But our eyes are set on God and our confidence is in Him. He will get us through. He's going to do what He's promised. So when we see the power of God, our response must be confidence in Him. So we respond with awe and we respond with holiness and we respond with confidence. And then finally, we respond to God's power by remembering. We respond to God's power by remembering. If I were to ask you what's the highlight of Joshua 3 and 4, you would mark on your test paper uh, the parting of the water. Boom, red ink. Wrong. That's not the highlight of the story. Remember, the miracle is a message. The structural focal point of Joshua 3 and 4 is not the parting of the waters. It is the act of remembering. Uh, if you'll look at this simple structure of part of the story, what you'll see is that the crossing is actually told in two different parts. I don't know if you caught that as we were reading through Joshua 3 and 4. It's not like the way you and I would write the story. It would just be one action point after the no another in a linear fashion. But this writer structures the story in a way to spotlight that which is most important. The parting of the water and the crossing, it only gets about a verse and a half. But this call to remember and the act of remembrance gets a lot more real estate. So in 3, 4 to 17, we have the first part of the crossing. Then we have the stones of remembrance and then the crossing part two. So spotlighted right in the center of the structure of this passage are these stones of remembrance. And then the story ends with that command to remember and to tell this story to future generations. The highlight, the spotlight of Joshua 3 and 4 is the act of remembering the mighty acts of God. God doesn't want His people to forget, and God's people have always been very forgetful people. We, we are like theologian goldfish, right? We, we see these mighty acts of God, but then we get into our day-to-day -day lives and we forget who He is and what He's done and what He's able to do. And have you ever thought about what are the consequences of forgetting God? You don't have to wonder about that. We know from Israel's own history what happens when his people forgot him. We read this passage just a few weeks ago in the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, I want you to see what it says about a people who forgot God. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 that whole generation was also gathered to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. The Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. When we forget the Lord, the consequences are spiritually devastating for us and our children. Oh, it is really appropriate that we uh, had baby dedication today 
And that as a church, we committed ourselves to pray for these families and their children. And we committed ourselves to make sure the gospel is in front of them. Always. Always. The the reason that we as members of this church uh, are present and we serve, and we would even go so far as to give out of our own pocketbooks for the work of this church is so that our children, our teenagers, would hear the gospel and see Christ and know Him. We are committed to remembering and to telling this gospel story to future generations. Remembering the Lord's mighty acts is an essential practice to a healthy and mature relationship with Christ. And so remembering is built into our regular worship. Did you know this? That the reason we worship on every Sunday is so that we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We gather on Sundays. We, we carve time out of our schedules. You get up early. You drive a long ways. You come here on Sundays because we need this week after week rhythm to remember the gospel, to hear the story again, to be reminded of the promises of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. But Sunday to Sunday, guess what? There are other days in between, and our memories are fleeting. And that's why God's people build into our lives these practices of spiritual disciplines, so that day after day we are in prayer and we are in the Word of God, so that we would remember the gospel again, and we wouldn't forget. And in fact, the highest act of worship in our church is an act of remembrance, The Lord's Supper, our regular rhythm of taking the Lord's Supper at South Shore Baptist is the last Sunday of of the month, and that was supposed to be last Sunday. But with this passage on the calendar, we moved it to today so that we would remember well together Christ who gave His body, who shed His blood for our salvation. And I don't know if you picked up on the detail in this story that Joshua actually builds two stones of remembrance, one uh, on the west side of the Jordan and then one right in the middle of the Jordan. Did you catch that detail? That in the middle of the Jordan River, he piled these stones up there. And why does he do it? We aren't told. It's It's a detail that's not revisited by the writer or by future writers. I have a guess And in humility, I will say it's only a guess, and it could be very wrong, and I I welcome that correction. But here's a guess. I think Joshua, under the inspiration of God, built stones of remembrance, this altar in the middle of the Jordan River, looking forward to a day that he did not yet fully understand or comprehend. Because down the road, one who shared his name that we call Jesus would be baptized in that same water, in that same vicinity. And he would be baptized in the presence of his disciples, these apostles who are the rocks of the church, the foundations of the New Testament church. And there we remember not just what God did once upon a time for Israel, but what he is doing for all those who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, God entered the waters again. And today when we eat and drink here in a little bit, we remember Christ who was baptized at the Jordan and killed at the cross and rose again three days later. And this act of remembrance is especially important, not just in our worship, not just in our fellowship, but it's especially important in our times of crisis. It's important that you remember who God is and what he's done when you are hard pressed on every side by life. I reference Joshua 3 and 4 at almost every graveside service I do. 
And here's what I say. I talk about this tradition of God's people taking stones, building an altar. These are stones of remembrance, and it's the place where you would remember what God has done for His people. And standing in that cemetery, I'll tell this precious family, I'll say, look at where we're standing today. We're in a field full of stones of remembrance. And so as often as you come to this sacred place, you're going to remember the person you love and you miss, but I want you to remember beyond that, remember the God who gave them to you and holds the hope of everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we've got to remember. We cannot forget the Lord. We have to remember every day, remember the gospel, remember the Christ who has given us this salvation. And now you and I, we are living stones of remembrance. Peter talks about this. In 1 Peter, we are the stones of the temple that tell this story with our lives, with our words, with our deeds so that people would see the mighty acts of God. They would call on Christ for salvation. They would remember for themselves. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember what the Lord has done. And so here in Joshua chapters 3 and 4, we've seen God's power in parting the Jordan River. And in response, we should be in awe of Him. We should be holy like Him. We should be confident in Him. And we should remember Him. We've got to be four for four on these things. This is not optional for God's people. In fact, the list could be infinitely longer because I don't know what an audience with omnipotence does with a person, but it has to change us. We don't see the power of God and walk away unchanged or indifferent, but rather we see God's mighty acts. We see God's powerful character, and it makes us a different people. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, hey, Cody, you're saying i got to be four for four. I'm 0 for four today because you don't know what I'm going through. And no one else in this room knows what I'm going through. They might be four for four, but they haven't been going through what I'm going through. And listen, friend, I understand that mentality, but I want to make sure you understand who you share this space with. This is an auditorium of the afflicted. And represented in this church family is suffering of every kind. Hard diagnoses, long illnesses, hard grief, brokenness of every kind, addictions and hardships and problems. We are an audience of the afflicted. But the difference between those who suffer and wilt and those who walk with God and suffer and have victory is where our eyes are set. You've got to set your eyes on the Lord today. You've got to see Christ crucified and risen again for you. In the face of every hardship, and I know it's serious, I know it's intense. Listen, just the calls and text messages from this weekend are enough to make our knees weak. But I'm telling you that when we set our eyes on God and we see Him in His power, we're going to make it through. Just like Israel, you have to see God. You've got to set your eyes on the Lord. And how do you do that? That seems like just nice Christianese language, but how do you practically set your eyes on the Lord? There's any number of ways you might accomplish it. Here's the challenge I want to give you in the week ahead. I want you to set aside dedicated time every day to pray but I want you to pray in a specific way. I challenge you to pray every day this week 
without once asking God for anything. Leave your shopping cart at the door. And when you come to God, speak to him about who he is and what he's done. That's it. Every day this week, pray these things. Set your eyes on God this way, that you would come to God in prayer and say, God, you're good, you're holy, you're kind, you're compassionate, you're merciful, you're forgiving. You are my Father who is in heaven. And God, you parted the Red Sea and you parted the Jordan River and you gave your one and only Son and you've saved my soul. Remember his mighty acts, church. Set your eyes on the Lord that way. This week, pray to him about who he is and what he's done. And it begs the question for every one of us in this room, do you have a memory of your conversion? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, then I want to lift your eyes to someplace very specific. I want you to lift your eyes to this cross. Because this cross tells a story that you need to hear maybe for the first time and then you need to remember for the rest of your life. This cross tells a story about death because it is an instrument of death. It is an instrument for execution. But it speaks to a spiritual death that is necessary for every sinner who has sinned against God. That's every one of us in this room. We deserve death. We deserve that cross. But God loves you and the cross is a reminder of his incredible, powerful love for sinners. That God the Father sent God the Son to die on your place on this cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And that's why this cross is empty today. You didn't die on that cross. Jesus died in your place. And Jesus isn't on that cross because he's alive today. And that means his promises are true. He is powerful enough to save you. And you might think your sin is too big, too much, too great. Your sin's not more powerful than the compassion and mercy and grace of God. He will save you and make you his and give you eternal life. And I implore you, give your life to Jesus Christ today. And maybe we need a conversation today or sometime this week, but this is the day of salvation. Let this be the memory of your conversion the day you gave your life to Christ and you found him to be true and good and powerful. In church, we need to walk into the week ahead with our eyes on God. We're going down a path we haven't been down before, but that's okay. Don't you be afraid. You've got reasons to be afraid, but don't you doubt, don't you will, your God is powerful. Your God created the heavens and the earth. Your God hung the stars in their place. He parted the waters. He toppled the walls. He struck down the giant. He set captives free. He calmed the storm. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the leper. He rose people from the dead, and he is coming again. Your God is powerful. Church, don't take your eyes off of him. Not for a moment. Be strong and courageous because your God is powerful. And tell of his infinite greatness so that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord's hand is mighty. And when we walk that way, when our eyes are fixed, when we are following him all the way to his promise fulfilled to us, we will sing a song, the lyrics of which are found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. To him who is able, he is able to do above and beyond all we could think or imagine according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church 
and in Christ to all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, powerful God, we praise your name. Who is like you? There's no one. Forgive us for all the ways we make you little, for all the ways we try to conform you to our image, all the ways we inform you of the miracle we need when we don't even know the depths of the problems we face. Father, I'm grateful that when we come to you in desperation and we come to you with what we think is the solution, you love us so much that you won't give us anything rotten. You will only give us your best. Help us with our unbelief this morning that we would have ultimate confidence in you. That we would be in awe of you. That we would pursue holiness in our daily lives. That we would be confident no matter what the challenge is. And that we would not forget your compassion. We would tell it to our children and to all future generations. Thank you for all that you have done for us. God, you are powerful, you're mighty, you're strong. There's no one like you. You're our Father in heaven, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.